The Mays Mastercast is proud to represent Texas A&M University and Mays Business School. Mays Business School's vision is to advance the world's prosperity. This sounds like a lofty goal, and it is, but we know it is also realistic because our former students are doing exactly that, advancing the world's prosperity. Our former students are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, VPs of strategy for Fortune 100 companies, and leaders in their various communities, nonprofits, and families. Howdy, welcome to May's Mastercast. I'm Shannon Deer, the Assistant Dean of Graduate Programs, here with the host, Ben Wiggins. Hey, Shannon. Good afternoon. How are you today? Doing well, doing well. We had a special episode today with Brisket Bowl and our former student tailgate that happens tomorrow, all happening this weekend. And so we got Mike Thompson here, and that was it was really fun. It was a lot of fun talking with him, and I think our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing some of the things that he had to say about the history of the university and his time here and how things have changed. It was it was a real pleasure. Absolutely. And you'll hear Mike's a successful business person and winery and vineyard owner and involved in a lot of different foundations and doing a lot of great things that I think everyone will enjoy learning more about. He is a very impressive guy in terms of how he balances such a broad variety of interests. Absolutely. Good. Well, enjoy the episode. All right. Our guest today is Texas A&M class of 76, class of 82 for the MBA program, owns a business in the electronic manufacturing services sector, and also has owned a winery and vineyard and managed a winery and vineyard since 2001, Mike Thompson. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me here today. It's, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. You're a man of many talents, um, and we are very appreciative of you giving us your time. What what brought you to campus today? Uh, fortunately, a few years ago, I was uh, asked to be on the advisory board for the MBA program uh, here at Texas A&M uh, probably about seven, eight years ago. And uh, today's one of our board meetings. And tonight, actually, the, the MBA uh, group has their brisket bowl that they annually do, which I'll be pouring uh, our Thompson 3150 wines tonight. Fantastic. I'm going to pretend I don't know what brisket bowl is so you can uh, tell our audience a little bit about it. Well, you know, Shannon Deer, who's been the most recent director of the MBA program, uh, going back a few years ago, the students kind of was a way to have a break and, and uh, from their studies, which is very, very concentrated and condensed, uh, to do a, a brisket cook-off, basically, and they mm-hmm. form some teams and do that. And a lot of the alumni comes in. And there's a chance for some of the alumni to have some camaraderie with the current students that are here. And the students just kind of get a little bit of, of a break in the action from their academic studies. Mm-hmm. And so as a member of the MBA advisory board, I'm also going to pretend I don't know anything about what that is. Although actually as a former MBA student and a former graduate student in another department as well, the MBA advisory board is still a little bit of a black box to me. So tell us, tell me and the listeners a little bit more about what you guys do. Well, I think for those of us uh, that have been privileged to to be involved, it's a chance to um, give a, an outside view to the program, our thoughts, what we think the marketplace may be looking for, and, and hear where the program is going and give some input as former graduates. Not you know, not everyone, most everybody's at least an undergraduate, if not an MBA graduate. But the biggest thing for me is a chance to meet the students and try to be mentors and advisors, and many of them will stay in touch with us uh, as they go on after the program. 
program and bounce ideas and ask questions and, and we're there to help and support in any way possible. The biggest thing that I realized about work from childhood to adulthood was coming to understand that it's really about relationships as much as or maybe more than anything else. What do you think your biggest contribution as an advisory board member has been? I think just being willing to be a mentor and, and advisor for the students that have called me and the ones I've met with and answer questions, a lot of the ones that you might ask today, you know, and what do we do in this situation? How did you handle the situation? It's everything from ethics to workload, life balance, you know, having families and how, how, how did you actually balance all those things? You have all these people that are so demanding in, in, <laughs> of your life, particularly when you come out with an MBA from Texas A&M, you're going to go normally into a very responsible position. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard for um, maybe the academic side to prepare some of the students for that. We're, we're the guys that are out on the field every day, mm-hmm. you know, living it. We're definitely going to come back to the demand, the many demands on your time later. But so you would say one-to-one is where you've had the biggest impact? I think so. Yes. Okay. Okay. So let's zoom out for a second and start, we'll start with our icebreaker question. The question that we ask of all our guests, what is your favorite superpower? Well, telepathy, which I, I heard was one of yours, would, would be one that I'd like to be able to hone in. I would love to know what everyone else is thinking mm-hmm. and be able to read their mind. You, you, you can do a little bit of that in life. It, it'd be great to be uh, Mel Gibson of what women want and be able to actually read everybody's <laughs> mind, know what they're thinking. It'd be very helpful. I enjoyed that movie as well. A lot of, a lot of fun, uh, a lot of fun physical comedy in that movie. So your and your father, so we're talking about history with the university. Your father gave 35 years of service to Mays as a faculty member. Let me know if I get the dates right from 1951 to 1986. That would be correct. So a big thank you to him, obviously. How did he influence you? And obviously you ended up coming here. What were the conversations like that you had with him about making choices in higher education? Well, believe it or not, he probably had very little impact on me coming to Texas A&M. Certainly a lot of impact in me going to college and, mm-hmm. and, and, and going on further. Right. You know, like everyone, I thought I might leave. You know, I grew up here, uh, born and raised, and um, I thought I would leave and come back maybe someday. I did love Texas A&M. I love the school. But I'd, when you're hometown kids, sometimes you want to get away and have a chance to experience something else and maybe come back to graduate school. As it turned out, we did have a disagreement on uh, rules and regulations. And so I decided I would pay my own way through and not ask for anything. So then I could do whatever I wanted. The only day I could, <laughs> well, the only way I could really do that was to have three jobs here on campus and go to school, which I did all the way through and graduated on time in four years. How did you manage this? This is not a question we discussed earlier, but how did you manage three? Like what were the three jobs and how did you balance this? I worked at the Tech Stadium golf course, uh-huh. uh, starting at end of high school, all the way through college. In fact, there are people that would still remember me from being behind the cash register. <laughs> uh, and when that include working physically on the course, mowing greens, riding gang mowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a job with North American Van Lines as a mover okay. uh, on certain weekends whenever I was available. And I'd work on the moving truck for Homer Adams, who owned Adams Moving Storage. I worked at a driving range where I picked up golf balls before they had all the machines to drive around and pick them up. We did it by hand with a ball collector. Uh, so those were, and then I managed a, b- a bridge club on Thursday nights. It sounds kind of bizarre, but I babysat a bridge club, got paid, you know, 30 bucks and watched TV. So it wasn't a bad deal. So I did those things all the way through school. 
That sounds, that's, that sounds very busy. So when you're going out to pick up, this is not business related at all, but when you go out to the driving range to pick up the golf balls by hand, do they have like a, like a no swim policy during that time? Are you we, having to watch actually, make sure you don't get in they, there? Um, they took a screen door, uh-huh. like a screen door you would put on the back door of your house uh-huh. and put a handle on it. And we held it here and drug it. And the balls would bounce off the screen door while we've got the, the ball puncher, you know, Picking up balls manually and literally a screen door. It's no exaggeration. This is exactly how it happened. That sounds incredibly glamorous. So as as we're riding the wave of nostalgia this weekend, <laughs> as a student, when you were taking courses, holding a screen door in front of yourself so you don't get hit by golf balls, what did you see yourself doing once you graduated? What were your goals so at I, the time? I had humble goals. I had believed that um, I did have plans to go to, to graduate school and, and mm-hmm. get an MBA. That, that was in my plans. And I had, uh, by the time I got kind of to that point, I started working for the university when I was 15 in the cotton fields. And uh, every summer we were you know, picking cotton and chopping corn and, and foundation seed stocks, which I think is still over there. And so I actually accrued time uh, with the state of Texas toward a pension. Oh. So I had 10, almost 10 years in the pension plan without really knowing it. And so I believed at that point, I was going to work for the school in the state of Texas the rest of my life, yeah. buy a house, get married, have a couple of kids and retire and drift in the sunset and live here in College Station. That's what I thought I was going to do. So obviously it didn't unfold that way. So if you could give students advice as to how they should formulate their goals, obviously there was a clear and obvious track for you and things have gone completely differently. Not in a bad way. Right. Um, You know, I would say you seem very happy with the way your life has unfolded. So given all of that, what advice would you give younger people about formulating goals and planning out their life. You seem like a planner. I'm a planner. My last semester of the MBA program at that time, uh, Dr. Bill Muse was the uh, dean of the College of Business, and he taught a course. It was it was um, a non-credit course that was on career planning. And like most people, people would ask, what do you want to do the rest of your life? I don't know. You know, I, mean, I, I hate to say it, but I really didn't know. And so Dr. Muse's course was very methodical. And you basically, in that semester, you went through a lot of chapters of question answers and series where you answered your own question, answered their questions about yourself. Mm-hmm. And in the end, you kind of drew a conclusion about what type of person you were, what type of job that you wanted, what type of career did you want. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, did you want to just be local and have an eight to five job? Did you want to have an exciting career and travel? If you had a family, did you want to spend more time at home? You know, all of these types of things. Did you want to be in philanthropy? And, you know, what, what, and at the end, it kind of helped me lay out where I wanted to go. And recently I pulled the plan out, sent it to my children <laughs> and said, how did I do? It almost mimics what's in the plan or the way my life turned out. I never really thought through it that way, but that's how it came out. So then walk us through the history a little bit. So from MBA all the way through, you know, opening ITS, uh, opening the vineyard, like give us a little bit of the just historical. So uh, after graduation, a few things happened. made me realize that I probably didn't want to work for the state the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a great great job offer that doubled my salary at the time to go into oil field services, which what is today modern day Halliburton. It was another 
corporation called NL Industries at the time. Mm-hmm. So I moved to Houston, got in the kind of on a, on a trying to be on a fast track with their corporate. They had 22,000 employees, which was big at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was hoping to fast track my way through the management system, become a president of one of their divisions. That was my goals then at that point. What I did know was a couple of years after I went into the industry, the oil bust took place. Despite what you may read, I'll tell you almost exactly, it started in May of 1982, mm-hmm. right after I walked out of this program. And uh, so as that evolved for several years, I realized that uh, I was going nowhere. I had laid off 500 people face-to-face over about six, seven-year period. I was pretty depressing. And nothing was really changing with the industry. I had a job, but I wasn't really going anywhere. And there was nothing advancing me. So I was called about an opportunity to get into the electronics manufacturing services industry. And um, EMS. EMS. So I um, I took a leap of faith and I changed, uh, changed industries and started all over again. And it was all in manufacturing, which is what I really did for NL Industries. I was running manufacturing operations. And so EMS was the same thing. It was just more pure electronics than electromechanical type manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And so I got into that and that became a career path at that point. And um, I grew um, into corporate management. I became chief operating officer of a public company that got purchased. After all those years of running these factories in San Jose and Colorado Springs and Alabama and everything else, I decided uh, to take another leap of faith, stay in the same industry, but take an opportunity to become vice president of sales and marketing, uh, which leads to a lot of what we're going to talk about here. And um, it was a very high incentive opportunity. Fortunately for me, I was able to capitalize on that. And it had um, unlimited commission with no caps. It really helped me evolve. Uh, and I'd never been strictly in sales. Mm-hmm. It was my first time. But because I was selling the services and I had run the factories, it was pretty easy for me to tell the customers what we did. Mm-hmm. So that's how I rolled into that. So tell the audience a little bit more about what EMS is exactly. So really starting in the 1980s, IBM, Hewlett Packard, Dell, Apple Computer, all these types of companies decided to no longer have bricks and mortar and no longer have their own in-house factories. And so they began to outsource all the manufacturing. And so today, most of those companies are virtual corporations. They're you know design, engineering, and uh, sales and marketing. And other people build all the products. So that's the industry really grew and evolved. Uh, at one time, Wall Street had it in the semiconductor index of the stock market, which really didn't make any sense. They had nowhere to put it. Mm-hmm. But now it's uh, you know the largest company in the industry is over two hundred billion in sales, and there's a lot of sixteen twenty twenty billion dollar companies out there. And that's all we do. We build other people's products. So was there a specific event or moment that influenced you to open your own business in that sector? So through the industry, the companies I was with continues to get acquired. Mm-hmm. And every time we would get acquired, I still had a, a job. I still had great opportunity, but it changed the dynamics. So the last time we were acquired by a, a merger acquisition group, they came in and you know evaluated, wanted me to move to Phoenix, and it was going to be be more of a staff job with no incentive. Mm-hmm. I, it, I'd be on 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 their on their board, but the upside wasn't there. I was going to take about a eighty percent pay cut to take that position to keep the position I was in. So. Right. Um, I kind of looked at everything. I was in pretty good shape. And I thought, you know, I think I'm just going to work for myself the rest of my life. 
And so from that, uh, I moved into uh, stocks, bonds, real estate, various things. And one of those was I would go ahead and fund an EMS company, which is our company, ITS, iTechnical Services. And I had planned at the time to be more of a financier, a long distance owner, not hands on in the business. That didn't actually work out too well. And I did wind up becoming very involved in the business. But originally, I was just going to be the, the main investor and owner of the business. Okay, we're going to come back to that as well, because you've taken a very hands-on approach to your other business as well, which, as you shared with me the other day, is frequently not the approach that people take to, to that particular business. But so you've been, you've been running ITS for nearly 18 years. What do you think is the biggest driver of your success with that company? With that company, it's really customer relationships and employee relationships. In this day and time, you know, and, and everything's about big data and everything's about doing everything electronic, uh, social media. But the truth is, it's still a people to people business. All the businesses I'm involved in and all the charitable work, it's still a people to people business. That just doesn't really change. It's And that may not always get taught, but it's really true. So then you eventually decided to open a vineyard and a winery. How did we get there? So when I took the job of vice president sales and marketing that I referred to, I then was hosting uh, a lot of dinners for um, executives and in many cases, engineers with IBM, uh, EMC, you know, Hewlett Packard, Sun Micro, on and on and on. And I'm doing uh, these these big dinners at Pappas Steakhouse and Del Frisco. And, and and I'm in New York. I'm in L.A. I'm in Chicago, Denver, San Francisco, you know, San Jose. And I'm the host of the dinner. They hand me the wine list. Well, I'm from College Station, Texas. I knew three wines, Boone's Farm, Mad Dog, and Thunderbird. And <laughs> those three wines were not on the list. Go so I, I came home and I told my wife, I said, Valerie, we're going to have to go out and learn something about wine. We made our first trip to Sonoma County, where we eventually settled later on. And from there, we began to go to um, you know Napa and Willamette and Oregon and Washington and Paso Robles. And then all through France, Italy, Spain, Germany trying to learn about wine. And so that led to us getting involved in charity wine auctions. And so some of the organizations that you saw that I'm involved in, all the funding is driven by these charity wine auctions. And so all of a sudden I was full in on recruiting winemakers from around the world to come to these events, whether it's Emerald Legacy Foundation or whether it was uh, Emerald Coast Children's Advocacy Center or any of those. And so our life became revolved around hanging out with all these uh, winemakers and owners and and people. And uh, the day came, I said, you know, why don't we just go do this ourselves? Let's go buy a place. This is great. It's a great lifestyle. It's a great food style. It, it, it's agriculture. It, it's wonderful people. You're drinking wine. Come on. Are you kidding me? You know, we took the leap of faith in 2013. We bought a, an, an old property in a prime location mm -hmm. in Hillsburg, California, in the Russian River Valley. It had great water, uh, it had views to die for. And I said, we'll plant the vineyard, which we did. We'll build our own private tasting room and we'll start making our own wine and we'll create a label and maybe they can use some of that for our charitable causes. And I hope that at some point I can use that to do something for Texas A&M. You mentioned that the way you handle the business as a vineyard owner and a winery owner is different than the way some people do it. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
the majority of the people at my stage of life and and um, that didn't maybe grow up in that business mm-hmm. are normally a little more financial owners and not as hands-on involved. And what we decided to do from the time we started it, yes, financially, we could have hired people to do everything. We did need a winemaker and we did need a vineyard manager. Those were two things that were probably above us. But the rest, we are sales and marketing. Uh, We are social media. We personally pack and ship uh, the shipments to our customers um, most almost all the time. We put a little notes in the boxes to say thank you for the order. We walk the vineyards uh, when when we make with the winemaker decisions on when to pick each vineyard, which we have seven that we pick from, including our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're on the sorting table when the grapes come in, and we sort through the grapes and we pick out the bad ones and uh, go through and taste through the barrels all year long and continue to just have our hands in the middle of the process and there are people that do that but they're not people that came in like we did later on in life with the financial means to, to do this and so uh um it it's it's been interesting because our our customers notice that and they talk about that and so when people we just built a private tasting room on our property on west side road in hillsburg by appointment only when people come out, we host them. We do it. Most people have a hospitality room with the staff that does that. When we do special events, um, 30A uh, Wine Festival or uh, Southwest Florida Wine Festival, Emerald Agassi's uh, Carnival de Vin, many cases they'll have a salesperson that goes and does those. Now, we do them ourselves. And people will say, you know, it's amazing. You're the only real owner that's here. Everybody else is an employee that's here representing. So I think that's where we're different. Social media for a vineyard and winery. What does it look? Do you guys have an Instagram? Like we do, very active on Instagram. Uh A little bit Facebook, a little bit Twitter. Instagram. My analysis is that's where the majority of the serious wine people seem to be, and so you don't have a lot of garbage in and out. You're only hearing from people that have. They only contact us or comment if it's strictly about the wine business. Other sites, you get all kinds of you know feedback on politics and things, but not this. So uh, I'm very pro Instagram. You know, we're trying to build our followers up and we post what's going on in the vineyards, at the winery, with our travel life, all involving wine or philanthropy. We try to post all that on there. And, uh, you know, it's amazing the people we've, we've gotten to meet and some have come and actually met us after they found us through Instagram. Plug the Instagram. What's the handle? Uh, it's Thompson3150. You know, then the 31 numerals. is a number. So it's Thompson 31 FIFTY. That's our website. That's our handle. That's our hashtag. That's our Facebook. That's our Twitter. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's the the end of our emails are, you know, Mike at Thompson3150.com. Mm-hmm. It seems, going back to Instagram for a second, it seems like Instagram is probably the most experiential social medium. Um, so I'm not surprised to hear that that's where, where you guys maintain the most active presence. I I still am not entirely sure I understand what Twitter is for other than breaking news. Um, And then Facebook, I think, seems to be more discussion oriented. But Instagram seems to be more, you know how they say that smell is the sense that's most closely linked to memory. I feel like Instagram is the social medium that touches our experiential side that touches our feelings the fastest. I think a little bit too the with the hashtags, you know, by by using the hashtags, it lets someone that's like travel that will 
that person will see me all of a sudden, maybe take a look. On Facebook, I don't really see that. <laughs> Facebook to me has been more family mm. and friends from the past and the way we've all been able to connect on just that social medium. Um, Twitter, I, I still, it, it's politics and I hate you. I hate you more. I mean, you know, that's, but with Instagram, I don't really get that. It's people like, oh my gosh, you're in the wine business. And I saw your hashtag and yeah, we, we're interested in what kind of wine do you make? And we get lots of hits. So we get lots of comments. We have been, and it's, it's actually all been nice, decent, positive stuff, you know, no, no haters that we've come across, which is ironic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. What made you choose the name Thompson 3150? So we looked at, as we entered the business, you know, how did we identify ourselves? And we thought about labels like leap of faith and, you know, things like that and mm -hmm. something unique. And we studied, you know, French, Italian, Spanish, Greek, you know, books looking for names and ideas. Uh, Lee Martinelli Sr. from the Martinelli wine family, uh, the sixth generation, he said, if you believe in your product, you put your name on it. That's where the, that we'd never thought about Thompson. He said, no, you put your name on it. Hmm. So then what's the rest? And a very good friend of mine who was successful in marketing in the wine business. One of the things that we're so proud of is our address at 3150 West Side Road. We believe Westside Road is the Rodeo Drive of Sonoma County, uh, and and it, it's it's a really prime location. And um, he came up with the play on words, have the three one and spell the fifty out, yeah. and then it leads to a question, and then it allows us a chance to tell our story that hey, we're at thirty one fifty Westside Road, and here we are, and here we are. So tell me about the throwdown, and you're going to have to pronounce it for me first because there's eight different <laughs> ways you could pronounce this. <laughs> yes, the Chichi Miguel throwdown. That one. So. Um, there was a, an impromptu discussion in a kitchen of a winemaker's home in 2005 uh, about who could cook the best barbecue ribs. And I had friends from, from Florida, which, which I had moved to, and uh, that were there. And they said, well, Mike Thompson, he's, you know, he's Texas. He's, he's the best barbecue guy around. Mm. And they said, you want some California boys to come down to Florida and teach you how to cook? Whoa. So the challenge was on. And my wife then organized this all of a sudden. We're going to have people there. This is going to be voted by the crowd and we're going to have this true throwdown, you know, in, in our backyard. And so she needed a name for it. So when my father was teaching here, I was probably fifth or sixth grade. He did a summer in Dominican Republic and Texas A&M had sent some professors after they had had their revolution. Uh, Trujillo had been the dictator. He was assassinated, taken out. Mm -hmm. And our professors were sent down to help them try to rebuild their economy with you know, ideas on how to get their marketing programs in place and things like that. So those people began to come live with us in the next few years. And some came to school here and graduated mm -hmm. uh, and then went back home and, and helped build their businesses. Well, while they were here, I was learning to play golf. My name was Michael. Chichi Rodriguez was the famous Caribbean golfer of the day. And they started calling me Chichi Miguel. So it became kind of a, a family name. And so fast forward to the throwdown and my wife pulled that out of the hat for whatever reason and it's stuck and it's been there ever since I think 13 years now so you have so many interests you're involved in so many organizations as as currently listed you're still active in 10 professional organizations how do you keep up well, I, I probably don't do a real good job at most of them, and I've been open with even some of the, the boards of those. You know, they're, they're mostly all children's charities that do all types of, of various things. 
But uh, because we raise a lot of money, Chichi Miguel Throwdown did $2 million this year. You mm-hmm. know, and then it all went to charity 100%. They won't let me off those boards and off those and involvement in those activities. And so we, we do the best we can. We host a lot of uh, wine dinners for them. We donate a lot of wine for them and help them raise a lot of money and then become active and uh, hands-on in some of those boards. You know, I don't make every meeting, but I make as many as I can. I'm really big on counterintuitive advice. So... Many students in the MBA program here at the university at large struggle with balancing organizations, classes, social life, and so on. As a guy who has a lot of uh, balls in the air, what what advice would you give to those students? Something that might not be as, so immediately obvious. Well, it, it, certainly at their stage of life, they could probably never do what I do today. Uh, and I couldn't either at that at that stage of life. The the hardest thing for them is going to be whatever their family relationship is. If 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 they're single, they have a lot more flexibility to do things. Um, if if you have you know if you're you're married or you're in a relationship and then you may have children involved, it becomes very very difficult, and you really wind up with just trying to balance your family and your job as best you can. Probably not a lot of time to do other things. But you got to always put the family first. Down the road, as I my children grew up and moved on, and then I went to work for myself. Well, then that allowed me to have a lot of flexibility I would have never had uh, in, in in a different type of role. And that's what's really allowed me to to be this flexible and juggle a lot of balls. I could have never done it though when I was their age. And yet, you still work seven days per your own declaration. The other day, you still work seven days a week. It starts in the morning with an iPad in bed when you wake up. Uh, I'm sure the listeners will be interested to hear a little bit more about that. Well, you know, it's it's the first, whatever happens in my life between investments and these businesses and these charities and other things, family, things going on, that's the first thing I do to try to immediately see, because I may be in a different time zone every two or three days. Between Eastern, Central, and Pacific, we cover a lot of ground. My wife and I move around a lot you know, with two homes and a business in another state and children and family and, and other places. So that's the first thing I do. And then I have to divide my mornings. And if I'm in California at, you know, five o'clock, I'm going to talk to the East Coast and mm-hmm. I'm going to get all that out of the way. And then I'll go to the to central time. And then by 10, 1030 Pacific time, I can go back and put my attention on what's going on in California. If I'm in in, a, in Alfreda, Georgia, it's the other way around. You know, I try to get all the things on the East Coast done first, then later in the day, then I begin to catch up on what's going on Central and Pacific time zone. Picking up the iPad, my wife hates it because she said, can't you just focus and watch a movie or something? I, I can't. You know, there's just too many things, too many moving parts. And all these charitable organizations, it, it's just, just nonstop. So I have three email addresses. I'm trying to keep them separate and uh, try to keep up with all of them. And you mentioned that this your life has become more this way as your kids have gotten older and there's been and you're able to specialize a little bit more life wise, I guess. Well, put my attention to other other things. So I've got to make my wife my number one priority. And mm-hmm. then I, and after that, then it becomes, you know, philanthropy, charitable obligations and in our businesses. And, you know, my children, are, they have their own lives going on and they, they only call me when they really want something. <laughs> <laughs> my Speaking of parents and kids, my I am from here as well. My dad is currently a professor of economics, has been for, I believe, 40 years. I think he just completed his 40th year. And he encouraged us to get away and then come back if we wanted to. That was that ended up being my journey. So 
when you are here, you've spent time in a lot of different places. When you are here, how does this community feel to you? What is unique about this community relative to some of the other places that you've been? Well, certainly Texas by itself uh, has its own unique uh, identity. I, I, Having lived in several states now, me coming here, particularly to College Station, obviously the town has changed a lot from when I grew up here, but there's still something about the people here. The people here are down to earth. They're the salt of their, they're honest, they're integrity, they're polite, they have great manners. They are always thinking of other people. I feel that way when I'm here. Don't always feel that way everywhere else, but certainly here, there's just something special. In Texas A&M, you know, uh, once we joined the SEC, and you know, I was living in Florida, so I was in the middle of SEC country, you know, the last 19 years. The behavior at other other stadiums is not like here. And all my friends, whether they're LSU, Ole Miss, Auburn, Alabama, all of them, they've all, to one per- person, said, wow, College Station is impressive. Absolutely. The student body there, the way we were treated, like no other place in the SEC. No question. So you're involved with the American Diabetes Association, the Emerald Coast Children's Advocacy Center, the Emerald Lagasse Foundation. Is there an organization that you'd like to mention specifically to our listeners? Well, I think today my 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 biggest focus has been the Emerald Lagasse Foundation just the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, that foundation... We support as many as 13 different causes. So it, it's an umbrella that lets us do uh, St. Michael's School for Autism, you know, Liberty's Kitchen in New Orleans, Cafe Reconcile in New Orleans. Now that's branched on to, to the Seaside School in Florida, um, another couple other endeavors in South Florida and now in California. And it's all related to mentoring and inspiring children through food, uh, and uh, as, a, as a way to uh, improve their life. Sometimes that's employment. Sometimes that's just a healthier eating style. Sometimes that's to, in New Orleans, instead of fighting it out on the street corner, sit down, have a civil meal, talk to the person across the table from you. <laughs> you know, it, it, there, there's so many ways that that takes place. And so that's that's been my biggest focus. Uh, the Emerald Coast Children's Advocacy Center, which is in Niceville, Florida, and has another branch in Dufiniac Springs. It, it, it's for child abuse. And I've been involved in that really almost 10 years now, hands-on, on the board. It's very humbling because I see, I get to meet and see the children that get brought in that have been physically abused and mentally abused and try to help them rebuild their life uh, so they can go on and uh, overcome the obstacles that they went through. So those two I spent the most time in. There's several others. Food for Thought, which is backpacks for the kids on the weekends that don't get fed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, you know, children in crisis and, you know, just different ones like that that we've really spent a lot of time in. But I'm not on their board so much, but I'm involved with them directly. Do you ever have trouble transmitting your message? If you're talking with someone who's from the streets, for for lack of a better phrase, do you ever get pushback in terms of what is this rich white guy trying to come in and tell me how to solve my problems by cooking a meal for somebody who disrespected me? Like, do you do you ever have struggles with that? Well, fortunately, the situations I've been in when I've met these young people, they're past that. Mm-hmm. They're already 
looking for toward this is helping me. Okay. And, and so fortunately I've actually never encountered that because the, the ones that are in the program, the ones that might've felt the way already left the program by the time I get to meet them and see them, they're already well in the program and, and they're telling me, <laughs> thanking us for helping support this. I mean, there, there's a young man we really have gotten to know fairly well and he was uh, dropped out of high school sit on the front porch every day doing drugs, drinking cheap bourbon and everything. He said a homeless man walked by mm -hmm. and said, you young men need to get off the porch and do something with your life. And he said, well, look at you. You're homeless. He said, that's what I mean. You young men need to get out there and do something with your life. He said he thought about it and he's like, wow, really made an impact. So we came to Cafe Reconcile where he started taking out the trash chopping onions, washing dishes. And when I got to meet him, he tells a story and, you know, all he could do is say, thank you for providing me this opportunity because now he's, he became a sous chef and he was going to Cordon Bleu cooking school in Europe. Wow. And with a guaranteed job at Commander's Palace when he got back. <laughs> so I've only gotten to meet them when they're really already past that initial hump and realize what an opportunity. So I've been blessed in that regard. Some humbling stories out there. <laughs> One of the most poignant things that ever happened to me, I was, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was flat broke. I had taken a job in insurance to make ends meet. I was working as an insurance agent out there and I, the business I was probably three or four months in had had some early success and then was sort of hitting some tough times in sales. And I was sitting out in the courtyard near where our business was housed where our agency was. And this homeless guy that I'd seen before, he was pretty put together for a homeless guy, but, uh, he was out there and he had, he had asked for, asked for money before. So he walks by and he says, Hey bud, can you spare a quarter? And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, man, I don't, I don't have one. And he could, he could, he saw that I was kind of in a bad way that day. And he said, do you need a quarter? And I, I kind of looked up at him and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, everybody has a tough time now and then. And you know, maybe you just need a leg up and it stayed with, it's stayed with me obviously to this day. And I don't think I'll ever forget it. The idea that we can show kindness to anyone and that anyone can show us kindness in turn. Honestly, that's, I think that's one of the things that sort of inspired things like this podcast was the idea that you can find something great in everyone and that everyone has that sort of that, that hero inside them waiting to boil out, or in some cases, a hero that has already boiled out in a good way. And in, when we come to a place like this, that's what we're hoping to discover in ourselves and each other. I think any final long form thoughts before we move to some rapid fire questions? Um, no, I just appreciate the opportunity to be here and always to be on campus at Texas A&M University and, you know, growing up here, my father having his career here. And, you know, I, I would say uh, I had a unique perspective uh, in the fact that as the College of Business was being formed, it was the Department of Business back in those days with subjects in marketing and finance and accounting. Mm -hmm. But literally in front of my eyes, I, I, I remembered it later that I got to meet and see the people that would come in and out of our home that helped build the College of Business, including the first dean, Dr. John Pearson. And it was kind of cool to look back and see that. I bet so. So a few rapid fire questions as quickly as, as, quickly as possible. What do you consider your most valuable failure? Uh, listening to other people and not following my gut. 
What do you think is people's biggest misconception of you? Most people that have known me the last many years think that my life is just one constant party and I just go from one party to the next and I've got the greatest life in the world, which I do. But they think I'm just partying all day, every day. (laughs) If you could have anyone as a mentor for one day, who would it be? President General James Earl Rudder. Why why Rudder? So President Rudder, and and again, me growing up here, he was a larger than life uh, person. Mm -hmm. Uh, He put... He put the biggest footprint on Texas A&M University than anyone that ever walked on this campus. Hmm. And watching that even as a kid, I sat in his living room when I was 10, 11, 12 years old at the president's house. And then two years ago, I sat in his bunker at Point de Hoc in Normandy with his name on there where he led the command that climbed the cliffs of Point de Hoc. And looking at the he commanded such a, a respect and a presence you know people don't really in my time and growing up here we don't remember anything about integration and cuz president rudder had a seamless plan how that happened here without it being any any issue the you know the media didn't know for weeks that AM had integrated and partly because AM had had foreign students for many 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 years from all over the world and it, and it became and but president rudder had a whole plan you can read his book rudder not he didn't write it but it was written uh, not too long ago and it explains exactly how they did that so he was always thinking ahead for the school and the future of the school and then becoming a co-ed full co-ed university Nobody but President Rudder could have made that happen at a time when really most of the alumni was probably against it. I don't think anymore, but back at that time it was. He commanded such a presence because of what he had done in World War II and being a hero like he was and so much respect. He knew the future where the school needed to be in all those kinds of areas. And he he had a plan. He executed it. And probably nobody else could have ever pulled that off. Well, obviously, we are grateful for the opportunities that have been created for women at the university. And it's also nice not to have to hang out with dudes all day long. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What is your fondest memory of TAMU? Was uh, beating the University of Texas in 1975. Why the 1975 game? It was my the, the football season of my senior year, uh-huh. which you know, was it was the the um, the fall of, of my senior year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had not beaten University of Texas since I was in the sixth grade, uh-huh. and my senior year, the fact that that we finally won, you know, after all those years, uh, it, it 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 was. It, We've, we've obviously later on won a lot of games, but that had been a long dry spell. And being a senior, that was really meaningful to me. I know the feeling. I was I was with the coaching staff in 2006, and it, it hadn't been quite that long, but we hadn't beaten them, them being Texas, since the bonfire game right, at that right. point. And that was to beat them at their place was really meaningful. So I'm... I'm with you. We end each session with some good bull, an opportunity to recognize someone else for something good or great that they have done. Do you have any good bull for us today? I've got three people. I, I, I would like to say something positive about Brandon Coleman, uh, class 78. He's been a great former student and, and, and a great uh, supporter of the school of business and mm-hmm. um, is, is a, a great supporter of Thompson 3150 wines today. So I thank Brandon for everything he's done for the school. A lot he did for my father. My father was a mentor to him and he then in turn uh, became a mentor to my father in a lot of ways. But now he's helping me and uh, he, he's just a, a really a, a great a and graduate. I have Trent Kelly, uh, who is class of 92 or three. I hope I got the right years. He was a yell leader here, been a great alumni 
a great supporter of a lot of charitable causes of, and, and worked with me in many capacities and obviously supported with our wine business. And then J.J. Rafino, Joe Johnny Rafino, who uh, was known in the area as having J.J.'s liquor stores, which he sold to Specs, uh, really has done a lot of great things in the community and for the school and, and for me personally as well. And those those three guys I'd like to have a shout out to. Yeah, I remember driving past J.J.'s when I was a kid. There were, there were a couple of locations in South College Station, maybe yeah. a couple more. Yeah. Where are you going after this, after this weekend? So we had uh, Monday for three weeks to South Africa, actually Rwanda, Uganda, and South Africa with um, another couple that owns a winery in Napa. And um, that includes a full week in South African wine country, which we have a lot of appointments to make it a little bit of a learning curve and learning experience. Now, we returned just in time to go to New Orleans for Emeril Agassi's annual Carnival de Vin, which is his big fundraiser and being on his board. We're involved. We're pouring uh, uh, one of our Pinot Noirs at a Thursday dinner with Danica Patrick. She's pouring her new wine, uh, her Cabernet. So we'll be doing the dinner with her on that Thursday. Uh, I think it's November 4th. Mm-hmm. And then his big event on November 5th and 6th. And then the week after, we are in Houston for the Bush Foundation annual gala, which our 2016 Russian River Pinot will be poured at the dinner for the Bush Foundation. And we'll also have an event that we do the Wednesday night before with them. So we're excited about that. Uh, some of my classmates I have, I have learned are involved in that foundation and, and so forth. I haven't seen in a long time. So, uh, and we immediately turn around and get ready to go to uh, Southwest Florida for the Southwest Florida Wine Auction and Gala, the 30A Wine Fest in uh, um, Rosemary Beach, Florida. And it goes on from there. I can see why you have people that think that all you do is party, although it sounds to me like there will be a lot of work happening in there There as well. Any final thoughts now that we've gone through all of that? Just appreciate the opportunity to be here and and, uh, always love being at Texas A&M. It's a very, very special, unique place and uh, very proud of it. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thank you. Kick them. Y'all enjoyed that episode. I know Ben and I did as well, and Kyle's with us here. We found a lot of what Mike said really interesting. One of the things that stood out to both Ben and I was Mike's comment about the iPad in the mornings and irritating his wife. I was actually, Ryan and I were watching a show. We were watching Better Call Saul, um, which Uh. is the sequel to Breaking Bad uh, and fabulous in a lot of ways. And uh, we were watching that and I was on my laptop and typing during the show and he said he paused it and I was like I'm good keep going he was like uh, oh. I think he was trying to say I'm not good right. like can you stop typing during the show I said like, I'm enjoying this I'm doing both and he was like I can wait like forever if we need to <laughs> I was like ouch and so then the other day he goes you sure have been typing a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I, as, as will not surprise yeah, you in no. my, in my marriage, I'm also the one in your boat. Absolutely. Um, and, but I've, so I've, I've had to learn that it's just not, not right now. And yeah. so for me, what it is, where it comes from is there are sequences where I can keep track of everything that's happening without using all of my brain. And so that extra brain energy wants to then go off and do something else. And then there'll be like action sequences or moments that are particularly compelling where I'm like, okay, now I need to put right. it down and see everything that's happening. Right. But I've just kind of had to train my brain to like, 
you know, like count sheep or like not count sheep exactly, but just sort of occupy itself some other way. Do something else as I watch so that I can stay mindful and engaged as professor but then I'm annoyed. Would say. Yes. But I don't I don't want to be annoyed. <laughs> I mean I want to enjoy the show and now I I think the comment about professor Krychek so he would not agree with you and I in this conversation probably right. right and because he would say just put it down and enjoy and and I want to do that and I I want to find spaces in my life where I do that where I really disconnect and focus on the moment But I also know, and I think this is true for you too, that I relax differently than someone else. So Mm -hmm. if I sit on the couch and watch a show on Netflix, that's not going to recharge me in the same way as maybe like having a show on, but doing something else that I feel like I'm really enjoying or productive with. And so I've had to learn not to force myself to relax the way that someone else does, Mm -hmm. but to let myself recharge my battery, however it makes sense for me and to not feel so guilty about it. So it's a little bit freeing. And I think that that's that, that particular realization, I guess that particular leap is especially valuable for how we spend our time on our own. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think what professor Krychek might say and what I've kind of challenged myself to do in order to maintain presence and mindfulness is I, I was kind of hearkening back to what he said about being in the shower mm-hmm. and yeah. just feel the water, listen to the sounds. And sometimes when I'm watching a movie with my wife and it's a slower part of the movie, I will pay attention to my breathing and I will think, how am I sitting right now? Like what is... What, what, what's the temperature in the room? Am I warm? Am I cool? I'm comfortable, but yeah. is it warm, comfortable or cool, comfortable. And I'll let my brain just sort of process everything that's going on in the room and think about things that 15 years ago, me would have said that is so boring. Why are you even thinking about that? But now it's a way of maintaining engagement Uh and maintaining presence in such a way that my wife doesn't feel slighted. Yeah. Um, I I think what you said was really powerful and a bit convicting, but it's fine for you to spend your time alone that way. Oh, sure. And and that the time that you spend with someone else, that there's someone else in the equation. Mm-hmm. And that if, if that's not, that doesn't feel like quality time to Ryan, that's important to consider too. And that maybe I just don't watch the show or I fully watch the show, but, but not in between. I'm with you. Yeah. It's I'm tough. with you. Well, thank you guys for tuning in and listening to the show today. We always appreciate you lending us your ears. We hope that what we're sharing is meaningful for you and you're welcome to give us a review if you like the show or if you have some feedback to offer us. Obviously, we appreciate positivity, but we appreciate the truth as well. So if you have anything to say, you're welcome to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you love Twitter, feel free to tell Ben because he hated on Twitter once again in this episode. <laughs> it's not that I dislike Twitter. I just, I, I you just don't get it. Just I, don't, I get don't. It. At some level, I don't like the thoughts. Even after they got rid of the character limit, I just, I, I don't really understand what you're supposed yeah. to use it for other than sound I've bites. I've never been on Twitter, so I can't, I can't tell you. But <laughs> we will likely have a few more episodes with former students this weekend, uh, kind of around brisket bowl and the former student events that are happening. So we hope you enjoy those as well. Thanks and gig them.
Thank you to our production team, producer Kyle Ackerman, executive producer Shannon Deere, and the hosts of the Mindless Millennials podcast and pre-launch executive producer Bailey Mullins. Give the Mindless Millennials podcast a listen. You'll find the Mindless Millennials show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, mindlessmillennials.com, or wherever you find your podcast content.